This is Phelan and Myers, two for 20 with the Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130 in Duluth, Georgia. Greetings and salutations, everybody. My name is Stephen Julian. I am your trusty co-host for Phelan and Myers 2 for 20. Unfortunately, Kevin Myers couldn't be here today, so I'm filling in for him. But with us, as always, is Scott Phelan of Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Scott Phelan, welcome to your own program. Well, thank you, Stephen. I appreciate it. We're lucky enough to have Eric Wilborn with us. He is an estate attorney with uh, Stuart Melville and Frost in Gainesville. Known Eric for a long, long time. Does a really good job. So we're going to pick his brain a little bit on some estate planning issues. There's some potential changes in the tax law. I know this time of year a lot of folks like to kind of wrap up their estate planning documents, get some year in planning done. So thought it'd be an appropriate time to do that. So I like it. Let's get to it. Why don't we jump right into it? So Eric, why don't we talk just about some of the basics of estate planning? What are some of the basic documents that you know husband and wife or you know single individual need to have? to make sure that if anything happens to them, that their family's taken care of, things run smoothly, etc. The basic documents we like to see people have in an estate plan is a will, a power of attorney, and an advanced directive for health care. The will can be simple or complex depending on your estate assets, of course. If you don't have any assets, there's really no need for a will. But the power of attorney and advanced directive for health care are absolutely critical for any human being in this country as far as I'm concerned. I got you. So, so if I have a stroke, as an example, years ago, I had a client that had a stroke. He was single, couldn't communicate, didn't have a will, didn't have a power of attorney, which was a nightmare, but that's kind of a separate story. But the power of attorney that comes into play in what scenario, and then the healthcare directive comes into play in what scenario? When you are unable to manage your assets, um, the power of attorney will step in you will name an agent in that power of attorney so that that agent will have the power and authority to take over your assets and manage those assets for you while you are incompetent for less than a better word or unable to make those decisions yourself. The advanced directive for healthcare deals with your medical decisions and talking to your doctor and trying to figure out what treatment is best for you and so on and so forth. So the advanced directive for healthcare comes into play when you can't speak with your doctor. The power of attorney essentially comes into play when you can't speak to your banker. I got you. So basically, they're naming somebody to speak for you, yes, effectively. Sir. I yeah. got you. I got you. So one of the questions I think we wanted to ask was, uh, you know, the, the main reason of a will is to kind of avoid probate. And I find it interesting that so many people kind of pause on getting a will done, but they're also afraid of going through the probate process. You're knee deep in the middle of it. Why are people, you know, why should people be afraid of, of having to go through probate? Why should they get their will done today or as soon as possible? It's an interesting question. When you have a will, you actually probate that will and you open up an estate to administrate the estate and the assets. People are scared of probate courts primarily because of places like California, Illinois, Connecticut uh, that charge astronomical fees when you um, probate an estate or administer a estate. The wonderful thing about Georgia law is we're form-based. Probate is a, is a very cheap process in Georgia, and it's very simple to fill out the forms. Well, not always, but most of the time it's very simple for folks to fill out the form, probate the will, get the estate open, and start administering the estate appropriately. But another thing that causes people a lot of anxiety when it comes to probate court is it's one of the nastiest courts we have in our judicial system. 
Um, I've been in federal court, state court, superior court, divorces, and I've handled all kinds of litigation matters, and none are as nasty as a family fighting over their loved one's money. That gets incredibly nasty, which is where that will comes into play. If the deceased loved one doesn't speak for themselves, you kind of leave it up to your family to figure out what that deceased person would want, and this is my, and it just gets very, very confusing, uh, and sometimes very contentious and litigious. And when someone has a will, and that will is properly done and very clear, it can minimize the nastiness because they don't really have a lot to stand on. Exactly. It, yeah. it leaves less questions yeah, to be go. resolved. And so the family can kind of get together. They may not like what the will says, but at least they know what mama or daddy or whoever the deceased loved one wants. And this is their wishes. And by law, we're going to follow those wishes. So, so it sounds like in the state of Georgia, probate is not that difficult of a process, maybe compared to California or Florida or Illinois, like you'd referenced. Is that an accurate statement? That is accurate. In my view, it's accurate. I know, of course, I don't practice law in any other states, but uh, Georgia probate process our system has made it as simple as possible. Uh, there's always going to be complexities to anything that you deal with in the judicial system because of just the process that you have to get through. But the forms are fairly straightforward. They made them very simple uh, or as simple as they could. And it makes it very affordable for folks who can't afford an attorney or the estate is not large enough to hire an attorney. It just makes sense for them to print the form out online, uh, which they're available online, the Georgia Supreme Court and uh, the Georgia Probate Courts. Uh, make those forms available to everyone so they can print those out, fill them out, file them, and the probate courts are very good in the state of Georgia with working with people uh, to get those documents correct. I got you. So I come to you and I need, I'm married, I've got two children, I need a will or a trust, right? I mean, they're, they're kind of interchangeable, I think, in the state of Georgia. You can do one or the other. It sounds like a will is probably the, the thing that most people do because the probate process is pretty straightforward. In what scenario would I want to trust, though, instead of a will? Trusts are helpful in handling certain assets, out-of-state assets. Sometimes it, trusts are necessary when you have uh, children who have special needs. Trusts are also helpful if you know that there's going to be quite a contentious battle after you pass away. Trusts are an easy way to avoid probate so that that battle never takes place. Um, so trusts have their place. Trusts are also very helpful in estate tax planning. That's one of our favorite tools in the tool belt to help with estate taxes. So, so, so if I own a piece of property, say in Florida, let's say I own a beach house in Florida, I own a mountain house in North Carolina, but I reside in Georgia. I think what I hear you saying is, is I can put the Florida property, the North Carolina property into that trust, and then I won't need to probate anything in Florida or North Carolina because that trust is going to avoid probate. That's right, because Georgia probate, even though you open up an administration or probate a will in the state of Georgia, that's not going to apply to any property in Florida or South Carolina or any other place. So you actually have to go to those states and probate in the county where that property is located. It's called ancillary probate. And sometimes, depending on what state that is, that could be quite a task. Um, so th it's usually easier for folks to just put it in a trust if it's that out of state. So that limits your probate and your administration to one single state, and then the remainder of your assets can be handled through a trust. Or I guess theoretically you could have all of your assets, including your Georgia assets, in a trust, and then the whole thing would avo avoid probate. Yes. Okay, yes. I get you. And then so one other question, I guess this might be more from a personal level than, than anything, but if you have younger children, and my, my kids are 18 and 16, so they're not that young, but if you don't want to put a lot of money, you know, if, if something happened to both me and my wife, 
I, I wouldn't want them to get a, a significant amount of money at age 21, for example. I mean, what do you generally recommend trust-wise? You'd reference trust for kids. What do you generally reference or recommend a trust look like? Kids would get money at certain ages spread out over time. Is that something that's typical for younger kids? It, it is. I like to talk to my clients about how they were at 18 and 21. Uh, I would not have been a good person to get a big check at 21. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would have been great, but that's another <laughs> conversation for another show. So I, I didn't mature until about 40, and so getting me a check at that age is, is not a good idea. I do ask my clients about their, their childhood and kind of give me a good, good idea of, of what expectations they have of their children, and we can design a trust to where we can scatter the distributions at certain ages. Uh, 18th birthday, you get your third. 21st birthday, you get another third. And then upon 25 or 35 or 65, whatever you want, uh, you can get the balance of your assets. We're speaking with Eric Wilborn. He's an attorney with Stewart, Melvin, and Frost. Their website is smf-law.com. Eric, before we kind of get out of this topic of wills and trusts, I think to a lot of people who look in on that topic, it's very easy to get way in the weeds of all the different letters and the living trusts and trusts for kids and special needs trusts and all this kind of stuff. How do you advise your clients? There's so many different scenarios. So many different people come in and see you. Do you kind of follow the rule of, of let's, let's keep it as simple as possible, or let's make it as straightforward as possible. What are some of the ways you try to advise your clients in this topic that sounds like we live in a state that, that the state is trying to help as much as they can with the way they set up their probate courts. So how do you help your clients navigate that uh, with all the different ways to get lost in the weeds if we're not careful? Simplicity is the key. You're absolutely right about that. And one of the challenges are all of the different options that we have in the state of Georgia of planning your estate. Could it be a will? Could it be a trust? And going through these options with your client could sometimes be overwhelming. And many times it is. Even for me, as long as I've been doing this, I still sometimes overwhelm my clients by all the different choices they could have as to how they could manage their estate to, to accomplish their estate planning goals. The best way I try to do it is try to get it, what do you want to do? And what's the simplest way to get there? The less complexity, the, the less problems there will be later on. And my guess is the less cost uh, over time to the client, both in legal fees and others, and headaches, I guess, would be the... You, you could not be more right about that. The general rule when you're dealing with lawyers is the more complex, the more expensive. Just go ahead and put that in the bag. <laughs> Everybody write that down. That's, that's good legal advice from a lawyer in studio. So from time to time, I'll have I'll talk to a client and they'll say, you know, I, I want to leave money in, in a trust to my underage child, as an example, but I'm single and don't necessarily have a family member that that I would trust with this money. Can you speak to corporate trustees and when you recommend a corporate trustee be involved versus an individual? Yes, yes. They, we have some uh, really good corporate trustees in our state and we have access to them in other states as well. But we're very fortunate in that regard. And corporate trustees come in very helpful. Again, when you, just like you said, you can't find someone that you know or trust that can do the job. But it also comes in handy when your estate assets are so complicated and your estate wishes are so complicated that it's best just to keep your family and friends out of that hot seat and put some, some professional in there who deals with it every day, who has a lot of resources at their disposal to take care of these decisions that fiduciaries have to make. 
uh, the fiduciary's job is a it's a it's a dangerous job it's, it's not easy and people should accept those fiduciary roles with a lot of caution um, and if the estate is complicated and you can't find someone who can fit the bill or accomplish the goals of the estate plan with those assets it's best to go to a professional uh, a corporate fiduciary I got you. I, I was going to ask kind of both of you a question. Scott, you're a CFP and a financial advisor with, of course, Phelan and Myers, Wealth Management Group at Janie Montgomery Scott. In people's financial accounts, what are some of the estate planning things, such as beneficiaries? Kind of talk a little bit about that. And maybe there's a question you want to ask Eric out of that. But, but you know, we're, we've been talking about wills and trusts, but wills and trusts, do they apply to financial accounts? Talk a little bit about that. They can. Now, in my experience, let's say mom, you know, is 85 years old. Dad's already passed away. Mom's 85 years old. Mom's living in an assisted living facility. So she's divested herself of all of her uh, real estate, you know, which is an asset that can create probate a lot of the time. So maybe she's got a bank account and then her financial accounts with us. Okay. One way to avoid probate and avoid all of this stuff is just beneficiary designations. Maybe you put a, at the bank, they call it a POD, a payable on death, you know, to to your two children as an example. And then with us, if you have a non-IRA account, you can do the same thing. It's called a TOD, a transfer on death versus the bank, a POD, but uh, basically same document. So that avoids probate, beneficiary designations do. Maybe you have life insurance, again, you don't name the estate as the beneficiary of the life insurance. You name individuals, and by doing that, you can avoid probate. And then, of course, with IRAs, you pretty much all the time have a beneficiary there, and that avoids probate as well. So you can set it up just by some simple beneficiary designations to avoid probate. And, Scott, as an advisor who's handling people with handling their investments, you help people do those beneficiaries and and do those TODs on their financial accounts, and you're telling them to go talk to an attorney like Eric and do their wills and, and potential trusts. So, Eric, let me ask you, Absolutely. as you're going through and setting up the wills and the trust, do you also then, again, a little bit out of your purview, but go, hey, your financial accounts, let's talk about your beneficiaries. Do you find that as advice that, that is helpful to give? It's critical yeah. to have um, the financial advisors involved because they know the finances a lot better than the lawyer's going to know. And on top of that, most people do want to avoid probate just to avoid the procedures, the cost. Even though it's small, it's still something you don't have to go through. If you can do a beneficiary designation, pay on death, transfer of death, or whatever it is, you can avoid some creditors that might uh, file a claim in the probate court against your estate or some other matters. But the, the bottom line is it gets the money to your loved ones faster. So uh, speaking of avoiding, you help people avoid headaches and pitfalls and nastiness in the probate court, but there's one thing we can't avoid, and that's the topic of taxes. So let's turn to estate taxes. I almost want to just get out of your way and say, okay, Eric, start pontificating about estate taxes. Please um, <laughs> yeah, We'll be here all day. But let's start, with, uh, let's start with the good news, the unlimited marital deduction. Talk about that. Unlimited marital deduction is a simple... Uh, rule that says you can pass as much of your assets as you want to your spouse upon your death without any tax penalties. So it's a fairly straightforward rule. It's very helpful in estate tax planning because you can uh, use unified tax credits and do all kinds of funny things. And here I go down the rabbit trail, so I'll back on up. Okay. As a, as I see it, there there are three different you know estate planning as it relates to tax issues. There's the unlimited marital deduction, which you just explained. There's the unified credit. Do you mind just talking a little bit about that, what it is, kind of how it works? Sure. Um, the unified tax credit is amount of money that 
Congress says we can pass to whomever we wish, our loved ones or, or people we don't like, whatever we want to do, uh, without paying an estate tax or a gift tax. Uh, the unified tax credit deals with uh, gift taxes, estate taxes, and other issues. And so they've just unified it all into one tax credit that kind of shields all of your money from being taxed on uh, for gift taxes or estate tax basis. And the IRS keeps track of how much you gift and how much uh, you have. And at the time of your death, they'll do the tallies, calculate everything up, and find out if you owe a tax or not. The unified tax credit right now is very high. I think it's $11.7 million or close to it. Problem, though, is we just saw a House bill come through last week or this week, whatever it was, that cut it in half. So, unfortunately, the unified tax credit is a ping-pong ball in Congress, and so when the Democrats get in charge, they cut it down, and when the Republicans get in charge, they raise it up. And so it, it causes a lot of issues with your estate planning because you're constantly trying to accomplish a goal with the moving target. Mm-hmm. So I'm married. So I can pass $11.7 million upon my death tax-free to my kids, as can my wife. So collectively, that's, what, $23.4 million we can pass with no estate tax, right? Yes. And then it's unified from the perspective of I can either pass it during life or at death. Yes. So one of the questions I get a lot of the time is, well, I don't want to gift more than $15,000 to my kids because of the gift tax. But really... If, if I gift more than $15,000, correct me if I'm wrong, but all that's happening is is the excess over that 15000 is coming off my $11.7 million upon death. Right. right. There's, there's an yep. agent up somewhere in the IRS world who keeps a tally, and they just deduct that amount over 15000 from your unified tax credit. Okay. So there really is no tax necessarily. The tax is it decreases the... If you're married, twenty-three point four million that you can give at death. Yes, yes. Okay. So if if you if your estate assets are worth one million dollars and you want to give your kid fifty thousand dollars in one single year, I wouldn't be too concerned about a gift tax. Yes, you're going to have a different. You're going to have an additional form to file next year with your taxes, just so that the IRS agents will know to keep the tally. But beyond that, you're not going to owe any taxes. Yeah, yeah. Because I get questions about that all the time. Well, I don't want to gift more than X because I don't want to have a gift tax. Well, it's not really a tax. It just comes off that amount that you can give at death. So one other question that I've got for you is the the unified credit potentially is going to go down, like you'd mentioned earlier, to I've heard five million, five and a half million from the current eleven point seven million. What type of planning can individuals do now? Let's say you have a net worth of thirty million dollars. What kind of planning can you do now to to protect yourself or insulate yourself from that number going down? to five or five and a half million dollars? Well, in general, just the same general tax planning that you would if your estate was $30 million and the estate tax credit was 11.7, uh, you're going to want to give us, you're gonna to wanna to use that marital deduction so you and you want to also use the tax unified tax credit that you can to pass as much as you can immediately uh, upon your death and then house and shield as much as you can with your spouse and then maybe some other maneuvers that you can use gifting over life or whatever you can do to get that number down as quickly as possible so in that example maybe start to gift significant amounts now so that you can take advantage of the 11.7 million versus being subject to the five or five and a half million next year going forward is that well, I would, I would be careful with that. The unified tax credit moves with you. So if you die this year, uh, right now, the 11.7 uh, million tax credit, unified tax credit is what you'll have. And, and I recommend for most of my clients, even if your estate is in the 3 million range, which is where I think uh, the Democrats were talking on the last presidential election, I think Hillary Clinton wanted that unified tax credit down that low. Um, and there are some Democrats who want it down to zero. 
So if your estate grows up to an amount to about three million, two million, three million or above, I go ahead upon a spouse's death and say, please file for portability. It's not always feasible because you have a lot of assets that need to be valued and it gets complicated. But that portability allows you to stack your spouse's unified tax credit on top of yours that shields more of that assets. And so you can go ahead and solidify that $11.7 million in stone right now if your spouse dies today and you file for portability, you get that $11.7 million that you can protect. Even if they do drop it down to $3 million next year, you still have that 11.7 for you. I got you. A lot of good advice, and uh, I think we almost made it out of the show without you saying, well, it kind of depends. You didn't use those words. But I almost I, did. But I think that last <laughs> answer was kind of, it depends on your situation, which is why people should reach out to you. I'll give everybody uh, the contact information if that's okay that with you. That would be great. Eric Wilborn is an attorney with Stuart, Melvin, and Frost. Their website is smf-law.com. Their phone number is 770-536-0101. Tell them what you need. They can certainly, you do more than just estate planning. There's other legal needs that they can help you with. Correct. Uh, my areas of practice are estate planning and estate litigation and right. estate administration. Those are my three big areas. Fantastic. Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank, thank you very you much. Guys. Yeah, my pleasure. Scott, before we get out of here, why don't you tell everybody how they can get a hold of Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Yes, give us a call if you'd like to talk at 678-448-4841. And thank you again, Eric, for being here. Thank you, Stephen, for helping me host. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for the invite. This is Phelan and Myers, two for 20 with the Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130 in Duluth, Georgia. The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janie Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may, at times, release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janie Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Janie, please see Janie's Relationship Summary Form, Form CRS, on Janie.com forward slash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest. For a full description of Janie's investment advisory products and services, please refer to Janie's Form ADV Part 2, available on Janie's website or by contacting a Janie Financial Advisor.